Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dress listeners, I hope that you will join me today in my excitement as we discuss not one, but two of my all-time favorite topics— fashion, of course, and also contemporary art. Some of you might recall that I have mentioned in the past on the show that before I became a fashion historian, I was actually a contemporary art gallerist for many years. So the fact that we get to discuss today two of my deepest interests, well, it gives me lots of joy. Yeah, and today we are so pleased to be joined by Alexandra Schwartz, the guest curator of the exhibition Garmenting Costume as Contemporary Art, which is currently on view at the Museum of Art and Design in New York City. And this exhibition features the work of nearly three dozen contemporary artists who have used clothing and fashion as a vehicle to explore broader social issues. And April... As you know, several of these artists have come up on Dressed in the past, including Ginga Shonobare and Mary Sabande. And some of our listeners might also be familiar with the incredible work of Nick Cave and his wonderfully weird sound suits. They're so fun. (laughs) They're so fun. (laughs) And then other artists, you know, we might be learning about for the first time. And that is why we are so pleased to welcome Alexandra to the show to introduce us to their work. Alexandra is a New York-based art historian and adjunct professor at FIT. Alexandra, welcome to Dressed. Alexandra, we are delighted to have you join us on Dressed today. Welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, yes, yes. And of course, we are here today to talk about your exhibition, Garmenting, which is up at the Museum of Art and Design in New York City right now. And the title of the exhibition, Garmenting, you point out has a very specific meaning in the context of art. So can you tell us a little bit about this term and also the historic lineage of Garmenting, which you so wonderfully detail at the very beginning of the exhibition catalog? So garmenting is a term that I originally heard from an artist, one of the artists in the show, actually, Sia Wolfalk. 
And the way I am using it is to describe the practice of making or altering clothing for expressive purposes. So another way of thinking about it is clothing as a medium for visual art. Mm -hmm. And this show in particular is looking at artists who do live in the world of visual art. So they're showing in museums and galleries for practical reasons, just so that the show didn't become enormous. It doesn't include designers. So it, it mostly includes artists who are using clothing as one of many mediums in their practice. Yes. And there are 35 artists in the exhibition. Is that correct? 35 artists and from all over the world. So we have artists from Africa, Asia, United States, Europe, Latin America, and some are emerging artists and some are very well known. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, with all this art and 35 artists from all over the world, can you tell us a little bit about how you organized the exhibition? Because you divided it into themes. What really interested me about this practice of visual artists using clothing was that, as you discuss on your podcast all the time, clothing is a way that we express both our private selves and our public selves. So we all wear clothing as a way of expressing who we are and what we like and where we're from. But also clothing has a lot of conventions tied to it. So these days, the clothing industry tells us what's in fashion every year, but also broader cultural backgrounds, the way we conceive of gender, the way we conceive of class and race, all of that affects what we wear. So I really wanted to call attention to some of these broader societal issues that these artists are dealing with. And the work itself is gorgeous. It's very seductive, very colorful. It's fun to look at. So I wanted to make sure that at the same time that people are really enjoying the aesthetics of this work, they're thinking about some of those deeper issues. So the themes which organize the exhibition, you kind of travel from one theme to the next in the exhibition, point out some of those issues, but they also overlap. So many of the works in the show address multiple themes, and it was intentionally structured that way because the work is all very complex. Right, right, right. And I loved it. And especially going back through the exhibition catalog, reading how you had divided things out, I pinpointed that overlap immediately. I'm like, oh, well, they're in this section, but their work is completely over here and over here as well. So... It was really nice. So let's talk about the first theme that you explore, which is functionality. And you address upfront that despite the implication of wearability inherent in this term functionality, that there is in fact a difference between functional fashion and fashion functioning as art. So how so? All of the work in the exhibition is art. It's actually not meant to be worn in everyday context. The exception is sometimes it doubles as costume in performance art. So an artist will use works that sometimes are shown as installation or sculpture in the gallery. Sometimes that will also double as a performance costume. But the work isn't actually functional. So what I was interested in looking at is how you take a piece of clothing or make a piece of clothing that 
we think of as being functional, as being worn, as being on the body out in the world, what does it mean to take away the function and to have it on display in a gallery where you can't touch it, you can't wear it? And what it does really is to kind of make the clothing strange, make it without function, without its normal place in the world, so that we look at it with new eyes. Mm -hmm. And so the artists who I put under this functionality theme are interested in looking at clothing in a new way and taking away its normal function to think about how it signifies, how it kind of gives meaning in the world. Yeah. Do you have a couple of pieces that you would like to talk about from this section? I think the best example of this is a work by Sylvie Fleury, who is a Swiss artist. And the work in the show is called Alaya Shoes. And it's literally a pair of Alaya sandals that she's cast in bronze. So there's kind of this tradition in many cultures of casting baby shoes. Mm -hmm. So little like baby booties will be cast as a souvenir or memento of I have mine. <laughs> you do? That's do. great. I remember seeing them in my grandmother's house of like my dad's and my aunt's shoes. But she's casting these very sexy, strappy sandals. So you might ask, why is she doing that? Well, I think that she is trying to call attention to the fact that we have these conventions of what's beautiful, what's sexy, what makes people attractive, what's kind of high fashion, what's luxury. But by casting them in bronze, she takes away their function. So you can't wear a bronze sandal. So it's making us think twice about those conventions of beauty or attractiveness or sexuality. And also she kind of turns them into a lethal weapon. So yes. we think about, yeah, we think about these shoes being attractive and sexy, but as anyone who's worn high heels for a long time knows, they can be incredibly uncomfortable and actually kind of hurt your feet. So I think that she's calling attention to that and the fact that even though they're beautiful and their craftsmanship is amazing, they actually are not so great for women in kind of a strictly physical sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, when I first moved to New York City, and it's still this way, I had so many heels when I moved here because I wore them all the time. And now they just sit in my closet with their little photograph on the outside of the box and they just sit there. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it goes totally. to, you know, it just goes to speaking of like not functional, not functional in the city for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, gorgeous, but not so good for everyday life. Right. So one of my favorite pieces from this section was Andrea Zatel's A to Z smock shop uniforms. And I have been following her work for a long time. This is not her first foray into working in the subject of clothing as, as a sort of form of cultural critique, particularly of fashion's complicity within and under capitalism. I think it was like in the very, very early 90s, she was creating what she called six-month uniforms, where she said she would design, quote, design and make one perfect dress for each season and then would wear that dress every day for six months. I was tired of the tyranny of constant variety, end quote. So the uniform piece that you've included in the exhibition is sort of like a second generation of this first initial concept that she was working with. Would you tell us a little bit about the piece that you included and why you chose it for the show? 
So these are from Zatel's A to Z smock shop uniform collection. As you mentioned, she's been making uniforms since the 90s, and it started out as uniforms that she made for herself. As part of her bigger practice, she's interested in how design affects how we live. So she makes furniture pods that are kind of a whole house within one piece of furniture. She looks at food, she looks at clothing. And it's related to this utopian idea that was around mostly in the 19th and early 20th century that you could change people's lives by giving good design, by kind of streamlining how people live and taking away some of the pitfalls that come with certain kinds of architecture or design or clothing and improve people's living. Mm -hmm. So the uniforms that she made for herself, they were called six-month uniforms because she wore each one for six months and it took away the choice for her. So she knew what she was doing every day. She wasn't worried about what she was going to wear. And it also separated her from the fashion system, from the kind of desire to keep up with trends or to buy new clothing. So she saw it as a way of improving her own life. The smock shop uniforms that are included in the show, she made a little later, starting in 2006. And she wanted to bring in multiple makers to this practice of creating uniforms. So she made a basic pattern, which she provided to other people so that they could sew their own uniforms, which were based on smocks, that they could personalize with any material that they wanted. So she had had her own practice of making uniforms, and she's made dozens over the years. But this opened it up to a broader public. It also was intended to be a source of income for artists in the Los Angeles area who could sell the smocks. And the suggestion was that each smock that was sold, Zatel intended for the buyer to wear the smock every day for the entire season. So again, it's kind of taking the choice out of what we wear, but in a positive way, kind of making it something that we don't worry about, we don't spend more money on. And so the smock shop became a kind of performance that each participating smocker participated in. And the form of the smock has special significance for Zatel as well, because it's a work garment. You think of wearing a smock when you paint or similar to an apron when you cook. And the 19th century designer William Morris saw them as a uniform for social protest and a symbol of a simplified kind of life. And Zatel really admired that too. Yeah. And there's a long lineage. And this is something that you do talk about at the very beginning of the book when you talk about the history of garmenting within within the art context of there's a very long lineage of artists working with this concept. You know, the Russian constructivists played with this idea as well. We, of course, get the tuta from Ernesto Micheles. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she, I think she's kind of teasing and playing with that idea as well a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned the Russian constructivists. Something that I was really interested in in the show is how this idea of garmenting, of using clothing as a medium for visual art, has a really long history. So I trace it all the way back 
back to the court of Louis XIV and the imperial court in China around the same time when clothing was part of a broader visual arts program. So at Versailles and in the imperial court in Beijing, the rulers kind of dictated what people wore as part of this broader visual arts program. So clothing was part of this kind of bigger culture and this bigger visual culture. So I start there. And then the moment in the early 20th century when the Russian constructivists were bridging art and life through design, developing uniforms and costumes for performance was another really important time where visual art and fashion were melded together. I say that the godmother of the exhibition is the Ukrainian French artist Sonia Delaunay. Love. <laughs> oh, me too. I'm such a fan. She had her own fashion atelier at the same time that she was working as an avant-garde painter. So she brought her principles of art and design into kind of every part of her life. And then I trace it into the 1960s where there were a trio of Japanese women artists living in New York who were all doing artworks and performances using garments. So they were Atsuko Tanaka, Yayoi Kusama, and Yoko Ono, who were all doing really important work with garments. And then it kind of takes off from there. So during the 70s and 80s, we have people like Lorraine O'Grady, Joseph Boys. And then into the 90s, there was a real boom in artists who were using garments as part of their practice. And that's where Andrea kind of picks up within that lineage. Yeah, absolutely. She was one of the real innovators in, in bringing garments into a visual arts practice. So let's chat about your next theme, which is cultural difference. And you write, quote, historically, dress was determined mostly by cultural identifiers such as ethnicity, region, religion, and class. But many of these markers have been eroded by industrialization and globalization. So how have some of the artists that you've decided to include in this particular section addressed the topic of cultural difference within this context in their work? Well, cultural difference, I would say, really runs throughout the show. These themes overlap with every theme, but cultural difference is is one of the really big ones. So it comes up in a couple of different ways. One work that I think speaks to these themes really profoundly is by the artist Devin Shimayama. It's called February 2, and it is a hoodie, a found hoodie that he bought, but that he's applicated and embroidered with silk flowers, sequins, other embellishments, and that's hanging on the wall with the arms out and the hood kind of um, propped up. And it's a tribute to Trayvon Martin, who of course was the 17-year-old boy who was killed by someone who thought he was hiding a weapon in his hooded sweatshirt it turned out to be candy and has become a really galvanizing point in the struggle against police brutality and violence against African-Americans specifically. So it becomes this incredibly poignant memorial to Trayvon Martin and also 
really encouraging us to think about how clothing has this very important societal role. And the hoodie in particular has become associated with African-American boys and young men and had this role in this incredibly tragic and galvanizing event. So it really makes you think about clothing in a different way. The flowers and the other embellishments are meant to reference the impromptu memorials that prop up when there is a tragedy. So bouquets of flowers and candles and pictures um, that you see on the street. And one of the things that I loved about that piece so much is that it is incredibly beautiful. It is. So while the story behind it is incredibly tragic, the piece itself has it has some lightness and some joy to it. So it's almost it's almost like a celebration of his life also. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a gorgeous piece. It's one of the works in the show that people really gravitate toward. It's on the cover of the catalog. So it does. It's it's celebratory at the same time that it has this incredibly poignant, sad um, meaning attached to it as well. Yeah. And I was delighted to see a piece in the exhibition by Sanford Biggers. And as some of our regular listeners might remember that I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times on the show that before I became a fashion historian, I was a contemporary art gallerist for almost 10 years. So I've had the pleasure of working with Sanford in the past, and he is such a lovely human being, deeply thoughtful, amazing. Would you tell us a little bit about this piece that you've included? So the piece that we included is a cape, but it's made from an actual antique quilt. It's a beautiful black and white piece. And he wore this cape as a costume in a performance with his band, which is called Moon Medicine. And he describes it as an Afro-futurist boy band, which he's being kind of tongue-in-cheek. Um, and I think it, it really captures his great sense of humor. Yeah. But the band has played in many different places. This was actually used as a costume for a performance at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. And the band is, is playful. They all wear masks, not of the... COVID variety, but of the more kind of decorative variety. Masquerade. <laughs> yes, exactly. Masquerade. And it's kind of part of his broader performance, which is looking at many of the same issues of cultural expression, um, handmade art and craft, how those come together. But quilts have a particular significance because, of course, of the very long quilting tradition in African-American culture but also they were used in the Underground Railroad. So people would hang quilts out on safe houses and other points along the railroad as a coded message. So it would say, this place is safe. You can stop here on your way to freedom. And Sanford is very aware of that history and those associations. So there are many, many different pieces of cultural history that come into that work. Yeah, and it's really, really, it's it's a beautiful piece as well. Very graphic, black and white. It is very graphic, very modern looking, mm -hmm. really gorgeous. Do you happen to know where he obtained the quilt or did he make it? I don't actually, I don't know where he obtained it, but he uses antique quilts in many of his works. So I think that he must be always keeping his eye out for them. Okay, 
The third theme that you explore in the show is gender. And as you know, this is something that we talk about not infrequently on Dressed. Yes. (laughs) So we talk about all the time how clothing has historically been one of the defining visual demarcators of gender and also how clothing is used to police gender expression. One of the pieces that I spent the longest time looking at in the exhibition was Zoe Buckman's piece. Could you tell us about this installation and and share a little bit more information about it? Gender is another one of the themes that really shows up in almost all of the works in the show because, of course, clothing expresses gender, especially in recent years. We've seen so much more fluidity in terms of how clothing is used to express gender. So some artists in the show are dealing with masculinity, some are dealing with femininity and everything in between. Zoe Buckman's work comes from an installation called Every Curve. It's made up of about 15 different pieces installed at MAD. And it's based on antique lingerie. So she collected lingerie from late 19th century until around the 1960s. And onto these different garments, which include slips, bras, negligees. She's embroidered the lyrics from different hip-hop songs. So mostly it's Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. And so you have this juxtaposition of these rap lyrics with these very delicate, lacy, pastel, antique garments. What she was referring to here is that when she was a teenager growing up in London, she's a British artist, she loved American hip hop and all her friends listened to it all the time. She knew the lyrics by heart. And it was only later that she really started to think about how a lot of the lyrics talk about gender. Some of them are misogynistic. Some of them are celebratory of relationships between men and women, but there certainly is a lot to think about and to parse in how these lyrics talk about women and sexuality. So you have this juxtaposition of these beautiful, sexy garments that are meant to heighten women's attractiveness and meant to be seductive with these sometimes rather jarring lyrics. And she's also thinking, of course, about the globalization of popular culture. She was living in Britain. These were American musicians. And how really all over the world, we share these cultural references in a way that's pretty new. That didn't used to be nearly as true as it is now. Yeah. And I would argue not just in in terms of the globalization aspect, not just in terms of music, but also fashion. So again, another thing that kind of connects a lot of this work together. So Zoe's work is is an installation, and there's a lot of sculpture and installation in the show, but there's also digital media, particularly video. Alexandra, this is, I just love his work so much. Will you share with our listeners, who is Miss Chief Eagle Testicle? I am so glad you asked. Miss <laughs> um, Chief Eagle Testicle is the alter ego of one of the artists in the show, Kent Monkman. He is a Canadian Cree artist, and he developed Miss Chief, as he refers to her, as a way to talk about indigeneity and 
inserting a native presence into American and European art history. So in our show, Miss Chief is represented by this incredible gown that Kent made actually for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He did a big set of paintings for the Great Hall at the Met that were European style history paintings, but they featured mischief and mischief kind of intervening in these scenes of immigration and replacing a European kind of figure with a native one. So to celebrate the opening of this show of paintings, he did a performance in drag as Miss Chief. And it's this gorgeous dress. He calls it a teepee dress and it is shaped like a teepee. It has some kind of traditional painting on the side of it. He has this enormous headdress and it's very tongue in cheek. So Kent is really an advocate for native art but he's trying to insert a certain element of playfulness and humor and gender bending into rethinking these narratives. And I think part of his strategy is that doing this with humor and a certain light touch makes it a lot easier to really delve into these very serious social issues. So he did a performance wearing the dress for the opening. And also there is a video that you can find online and that we show in the gallery where he is giving a very kind of serious talk about his work for the Met in his regular clothes. And then all of a sudden it switches to him in drag as Miss Chief (laughs) and going through the galleries in this very performative way, kind of pointing works of art out as his alter ego. Yeah, and he's so incredibly successful at doing that balancing act. There's a little bit of element of camp in there, but I think you're right, you know, that light touch. Sometimes that's really hard for artists to do, to strike that right balance, but he's able to do that, and I love his work so much. Me too. There's a part in the video where he's going through one of the doorways in the Mets galleries, and his enormous hoop skirt at on the teepee dress gets stuck for a minute. <laughs> and to me, it's just such a funny moment in this like very kind of profound and interesting piece, but he manages to inject some humor into it too. Yeah, for sure. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. 
So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The final theme of the exhibition provides an umbrella, as we've kind of already touched on, for all of these topics that we've talked about, activism, gender, cultural difference, functionality, and that is by way of performance. So would you like to talk a little bit about some of the pieces that you have included in this section? And I do believe that the exhibition has like like a whole companion element of actual performance pieces that are being staged at the museum as well. So performance runs throughout the whole show. A lot of the works in all of the sections double as costume and performance. What's kind of different about these artists' use of costume as opposed to the way we normally see costumes in a play or a ballet or an opera is that the costume is an integral part of the performance and the performance is to some extent about the costume. Right. So... Seeing it in motion on the body, you, of course, experience it in in a different way. And we really wanted to highlight that. So whenever possible, we include iPads with video footage of past performances that have used some of the works in the show. And then there's a whole section of the gallery devoted to performance where we have projected video performances by artists in the exhibition who will also be be performing live at the museum. We have one live performance each month. One of the works that I think addresses the crossover between garments and performance in such an interesting way is by a young artist named Aeyang Yu. She is a Korean American artist and her work looks at ritual rituals that she's learned from her mother and her grandmother and other family members, often incorporating traditional dress, 
And she reenacts these rituals, but changes them and juxtaposes them in certain ways so that it's kind of examining the history of these rituals. She's very interested in gender and how gender is performed through these rituals. And of course, gender is performed through dress. So she will be performing in May and there's one each month for the duration of the show. And if people want to find out more information about these performances, where can they find it? Madmuseum.org. You can buy tickets to the performances through the museum's website. Yes. Also, if people want to get their hands on an exhibition catalog, I'm, sh- I'm assuming they can go there to the museum's site as well to order one. Yeah, and it's available really both in bookstores and in all of the web-based bookstores as well. And the catalog includes wonderful images of everything that we've been talking about here today, and also a handful of essays contributed by other scholars of art history and also dress history, including one by past dress guest, Dr. Jonathan Michael Square. Do you want to just mention a little bit of their contributions to the catalog? Absolutely. It was really important to me to have other voices in the catalog. And I asked a variety of different writers, some of whom are coming out of fashion history, some are coming out of art history, to reflect on the works in the show. So Jonathan wrote an essay that takes a close look at two artists in the exhibition, Yinka Shonabara and Mary Sabande. Shonabara is Nigerian-born, lives in Britain. Uh, Mary Sabande is South African. And he looks specifically at their work in relation to post-colonial discourses surrounding the African continent. There's an essay by Rhonda Gorelick, who is a fashion historian and a dean at Parsons, who talks about how exhibitions of fashion and of clothing have this uncanny quality because they're no bodies. They're just these disembodied dresses. And she talks about this kind of sensation of going through a show and having this slight sense of unease because there are no actual people inhabiting this clothing. Karen Own, who is a Singapore-based art historian, looks at cultural coding through garmenting with a focus on Asian artists. And then finally, Lydia Bronner, who is one of my colleagues here at MAD and a performance scholar, looks at costume and performance within a fine art context. So what it means to have performance in museums and how garments come into this relatively new phenomenon of visual arts institutions highlighting performance. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us. The exhibition is superb. It was wonderful. I was just actually having dinner with Colleen Hill, who is, of course, one of the curators at the museum at FIT and has also been on Dress. And we were actually talking about the show at dinner last night. She really enjoyed it as well. Oh, wonderful. And we think all of our Dress listeners will too. So please check it out. How long does this show run? It is up until August 14th. So you have several months. Get out there and see it, friends. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us to discuss your incredibly poignant exhibition. 
What a refreshing investigation of the connections between art and fashion. You know, April, usually on the show, the question is, is fashion art? But this show clearly demonstrates that it can be, which I think is the, you know, clear demarcating thing. Fashion isn't always art, but it definitely can be. Yeah. And again, dress listeners, the exhibition Garmenting Costume as Contemporary Art will be up at the Museum of Art and Design in New York City until August 14th, 2022. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the potential works of art in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way Tuesday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.